Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Linda Holmes, in for Jesse Thorne. I want to take you to a city you've probably never been to, Huntington, West Virginia, population just under 50,000. Every fall, there's a chili fest, and there's an anime convention in the summer. And if you scroll down to the Notable People page on Wikipedia, you see names like NBA legend Hal Greer and Soupy Sales and three brothers, Griffin, Travis, and Justin McElroy. Together, the McElroys host My Brother, My Brother and Me. It's a comedy podcast. It usually cracks the top 100 on iTunes. It just got turned into a TV show, too, all set in Huntington, where Justin still lives. How'd they do it, you ask? Take it from Justin. It's easy. My message to people who live in smaller towns who have creative ambitions would be this. Um, And it's something I tell people a lot. If you stay in your hometown and you work and you give it your all and you try your best in your creative work, eventually someone will pay a bunch of money to come shoot a TV show about you. They'll bring the TV show to your house and then you don't have to go anywhere, really. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with the McElroy brothers about their new show and how sometimes the secret to making a successful podcast and TV series is pretty simple. Don't care so much about it. There isn't this like friction between any of us like, oh, why, why can't you just be more on board with this? I want this so bad. If one of us is like that, I think it would be a huge problem, but it's just not. It's it's miraculously it is it is not there then i'll talk with gina prince bythewood she and her husband created the new fox tv show shots fired she also wrote and directed love and basketball and the secret life of bees also did you know she almost didn't make it into film school i actually was rejected when i applied for ucla film school my junior year and i fought that and wrote a letter to the head of the film department, she read it and called me two days later and and said I'm in. Finally, I'll tell you about a musician who can turn literally anybody into a great singer. Doesn't matter who you are. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Linda Holmes, the host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Have you heard of My Brother, My Brother and Me? It's a comedy podcast hosted by three brothers, Justin, Travis, and Griffin McElroy. They're my first guests this week. My Brother, My Brother, and Me is on the Maximum Fun Podcasting Network, the same company that produces Bullseye. But take it from me. It's a really, really funny podcast. It's so funny, it actually just got turned into a real-deal TV show on the streaming network CISO. You can catch the first season online now. Like the podcast, it's an advice show, sort of. They set the whole thing in their hometown of Huntington, West Virginia. The brothers take a question from the internet and go to the most absurd possible lengths to answer it, like decorating a dorm room to make it look haunted, literally almost dying by electrocution, throwing a parade with tarantulas. The show also plays off the interaction between the three brothers, and it's kind of unreal how in sync they are with each other. In this scene, the McElroys are trying to pad their resumes a little, so they pay a visit to the mayor of Huntington, Steve Williams. It takes a little convincing at first, but he agrees to make the brothers all honorary mayors for 60 seconds. So this now reads, 
blah, 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 hereby Grant Griffin, legally the Mayor McElroy, right. Travis King of the Mayors McElroy, Justin, your mother was my third grade teacher and she was an inspiration McElroy, powers of mayordom for just like a minute amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> Steve Williams, beginning now. Okay, okay, okay. quick, oh, first things first. Man. Mayor Steve Williams, I'm gonna need you to move your car. Yeah, you know that list of people I gave you? Go get them. The state bird is now abolished. There's no more state bird. You only have responsibility over the city. The city bird is no longer... You said state bird. Yep. Yep. All right. And your 60 seconds. Oh, wait, hold on. One more thing, one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. Huntington, one more thing, please. Please, one more thing. This is Huntington's sister city is the moon. Revoked. (laughs) Our tenure was short but powerful. McElroy Brothers, welcome to Bullseye. Hi, thank you. It's nice to to be here, but not in the context of us having to do a bunch of goofs. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's it's kind of a relief. We can really uh, let our hair down. Right, absolutely. For public radio, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, I want to ask you first about Steve Williams, who's the mayor of Huntington in that clip. Tell me about your relationship with Mayor Steve. Uh, This is Justin, uh, the oldest McElroy brother. Uh, Mayor Steve is the mayor of my hometown, Huntington. So I wanted to make sure if we were going to put him in our TV show that it would be something that I could continue to live with on a day. Because he's still, I mean, I don't think the mayor gives parking tickets, but he probably could. No, yeah. Justin still lives in Huntington, so the mayor has some sort of legal power over Justin. I actually, this is the second time I've worked uh, performing with with Mayor Williams. He, uh, I, uh, a few years back, I directed... Uh, the musical version of Superman. It's a bird. It's playing at Superman. And uh, he played Perry White one night. And can I say, that's when I saw, I saw something in a him. A spark. I say, I, this, oh, this kid's got heat. He's, he's going to get his own spinoff series. Like, gonna, yeah. Everybody who has seen the show is like, who's this mayor fellow? So how was it uh, working with folks like the mayor from your hometown in the TV show? Because I know that working in Huntington was really important to you guys. It was, uh, it was very, this is Griffin, the babyest brother. Hi. Um, the it was very intimidating because I remember the first day that we uh, shot stuff, uh, really one of the first days of shooting altogether, we had like three episodes worth of stuff with the mayor and like three episodes worth of stuff with the chief of police, um, both of which are people who you don't want to like. Uh, you know, goof on. And they're like real people with like real jobs and real responsibilities. Yeah, and they're and they're they're really funny and really nice. And so like uh, we were we were I was intimidated of them as I am of all people of a certain level of of power. Um, but also just like I don't know, I wanted to make sure that they you know were looked 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 good on the the show, I guess, and they completely blew our expectations away. I think in that department. There was also and this is Travis, the best brother. Um, oh. There was also because we had talked about doing the show in Huntington pretty much from like the the beginning of development. Um, and and we just kept like telling CISO and telling the crew about like how great it was gonna be because everyone in Huntington was great. And then the first day we recorded with all these different people, and then they were great. And it's like, yeah. oh, thank oh, God, thank oh, we weren't lying. Well, what's funny is what you actually just heard. That clip you just played was one of the first like. Uh, proof of concept, like things that we came up with when it came to shooting in Huntington, and it was kind of a called shot where we were like, "We're from this this town. If if it works, we could do a local boys make good thing, and maybe they'll let us be the mayor for a day." And also, like it was really important to us that the joke never be, "Aren't these guys funny?" and "Isn't everybody else dumb?" Yep. So like. We, it was ext- it was terrifying because we were going to a situation where we couldn't tell them what was going to happen, but also 
they had to kind of roll with the punches and not become the butt of the joke. And everybody, like, just, like, got it instantly and, and went with it right away. And it was so much fun. Yeah, I've heard you guys talk about really having so much affection for Huntington and wanting people outside of it to to understand it and understand the people. Can you talk a little bit about what it is that you wanted your audience on the show to understand about about Huntington? Well, one of the things, like when I went away to college and like when I moved to different places – you get the question all the time of like, oh, what was it like growing up in a small town in West Virginia? And my answer is always like, it was perfectly normal. normal. Like, what was it like growing up where you grew up? Were there people in buildings and stuff? Yep, it's exactly <laughs> the same did they as have, me. Did they have shoe stores and libraries? Yeah, us too. Awesome. Cool. And that was the thing is like, our, our town is full of very wonderful, lovely, funny people. And there's jerks there too. And If you haven't been to a place or you haven't been to a type of place, I think it's easy to like let that place be abstract in your in your mind and like kind of formless and so whatever can come in there and fill in the gaps is going to be the thing that 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 fills your perception in there's a a really serious opioid uh, uh, abuse problem there um and for some people that that's making the national press so that's what is filling in the blanks for people and i think like for us making this show like i don't think we set out to make like a tourism guide for for huntington showing off all the hot uh, nightlife locales that you could come and visit and spend money at, but more just like it's a place. It's a place where people are just living and they are living pretty happily. Really, I think whenever I mention I live in West Virginia, stereotypes about West Virginia are the first thing that get brought up. And Huntington's not doesn't really fit in any, any of those Appalachian or, or quote unquote hillbilly stereotypes. And also those uh, stereotypes are caused by poverty and yeah. are not particularly hilarious. Uh, when seen in practice. So, like, I don't know, if if our show does just a little bit to, to move the needle, uh, uh, just a smidgen in West Virginia's favor, I will I will consider it a victory. Yeah. You talked about the fact that, that Justin, you still live there. Yeah. Um, how much was, how much of an undertaking was it to sort of make this show and, and spend all this time there when you do have, all three of you, a lot going on in different kind of different directions? Um, Man, killer question. Yeah, yeah such I mean, a good that entailed um, me and Travis both leaving our pregnant wives for three weeks. No, mine came with me. Yours, I moved across the yeah, country. Tra- Teresa and Travis moved from LA to Cincinnati basically just like a week before we started shooting. Yeah, we put everything into a storage container and shipped it to Cincinnati while we took two suitcases and our dog and our cat yeah. and my, at that point, I think six month pregnant wife. To shoot the show. Justin and I also have another full-time job that we just bailed on for a month to make it. So, like, it was it was a lot of – it was rough. It was a very, it was a very, very challenging <laughs> three weeks, but partially because of, like, how much stuff we had to kind of leave behind because we've built uh, an, an empire out of doing, like, a hundred little easy things, <laughs> I think. <laughs> it's a good way of putting it. And we had to shelve, like, 90 of those when we were making this. Um, and do a hard thing. And do, do one, one big, really hard, big thing. hard thing. Which, if you want to pit, point to the biggest challenge, it is that we continued to record my brother, my brother, and me. Oh while man, we were filming my brother, my brother, and me. Dark and days. I, by like the third episode, when we were actually all in the same room, we were all looking at each other like, "I have nothing left to say to you." <laughs> there's nothing. There's no one I want to be looking at less than these two guys. Like, we haven't nothing. recorded in the same room outside of a live show in like four years, and so it was really like, "Well, this is weird. I can see your face." Uh. Uh, we actually had to take off our 
our pants one episode because I our remember inter- that. Oh, energy yeah. was so low that we needed just something to do that was different because we were absolutely tapped. So we took off our pants that episode, did some power poses, got back in the groove a little bit. But uh, yeah, that was that was a big ask. Uh, in retrospect, maybe maybe not our smartest play. It's Bullseye. I'm talking with Justin, Travis, and Griffin McElroy. The three host the comedy podcast, My Brother, My Brother, and Me, which just got turned into a TV series on the streaming network CISO. I, I want to double back a little bit and talk about your empire now that you brought up your empire. Um, I'm so for... sorry I used that word, everybody. <laughs> no, I, I was going to use that word. Oh, so I'm oh, happy that you used it first. Um, for people who haven't heard My Brother my brother and Me, I did bring a, a clip. This is a clip that uh, begins with Justin talking about a childhood fear. I used to, when I was a kid, uh, I would sometimes get into the deep end of a pool and I would have the thought, what if there was a shark in here? And then over the next few minutes of being in the deep end, that thought would uh, gradually congeal to me, there is a shark in here. So Justin, the fact that you could see through the water didn't do anything. Don't matter, don't, don't matter, matter. he's behind me. He's avoiding me. He's made me. a glass. Me. Glass shark, glass shark. <laughs> Glass shark love fat kid. That's one thing about glass shark. You gotta know. Glass shark, he loved a fat kid. You stay out the water, fat kid. Glass shark coming for you. He get you down there bad deep water, that dark water. You, you fat kid, no go. Glass shark, come to that dark water. He get you, fat kid. You swim around, he bite your trunks right off. You tubby little fish, you swim all you want, flop and flap around. Glass shark gonna come. <laughs> now, the reason why I picked this clip uh, which goes on for about another, I don't know, minute Too long. of... Uh, no, yeah, it's, it's, it's like it's... every other My Brother, My Brother, Me bit that ever worked. <laughs> no, about no, five no. Minutes. It's, I love it because it's like... Uh, have you ever seen Dennis Quaid in The Big Easy doing like a New Orleans accent? I don't think it, so. This is what it reminds me of. And, and, and it makes me feel so at home to, to hear this like movie accent that goes on for quite a long time. Mm. But what I love about Glass Shark, and this is a little bit of, you know, comedy dissection... Um, is that it is very collaborative, right? I can hear all of you putting together Glass Shark. I feel like Justin really got the 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 ball across the the end zone right. with Glass Shark, but uh, yeah, I guess I guess Travis and I did assist in that play, it, kind of mixing my sports metaphors. It's actually a bit. really it's weird to listen to after having recorded it because, which is usually how I prefer to listen to things after <laughs> they've been recorded. I'm so erudite. This is a, probably too much deconstruction, but when you're listening to that bit, there's a moment where someone says he's made of glass, and I say Glass Shark, Glass Shark, and it's not funny and it's not a joke. It's just a recognition that, like, there it is. Okay, I need a second to, like, yeah, we found the thing. That's the thing. And, like, the, that sort of, like, stall there is what it takes to get to, like, that's the pivot. Like, that's as close as I can get to, like, nudging them because we don't look at each other or touch each other while we record. Like, <laughs> that... <laughs> like we are now touching each other. <laughs> We're all holding hands. <laughs> that, I mean, that's the, the weird... And, it happens. Uh, you, you listen to episodes. We've done what three hundred and forty-two now, mm-hmm. and like 
there are many moments in which one of us will open our mouth and say a thing, and we don't know what the rest of the thing is going to be. Sure. And sometimes it goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. <laughs> or we get the glass shark moment, and Justin doesn't, to build on this, doesn't say glass shark, glass shark, make us realize, hey, it's glass shark time, and then we somebody else is like, oh, I'm going to get in here and get a good goof in. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it, it, the good. I got, I got another one. Crystal whale. <laughs> <laughs> Crystal whale would actually be fantastic. It's actually pretty good. That's right like, that really a good. sequel. Don't. No, edit that out. We gotta save that. We're sleeps. <laughs> but like, it, it it's collaborative when it works. And God, our, uh, God help me. We're just always trying not to like be competitive about it. I think sometimes. Yeah, you know, you you talked about a couple of things. You talked earlier about about trusting each other completely, and you talked about trying not to be competitive. Do you think there are things about the way that you grew up and the way that your family worked when you were growing up that built this kind of relationship between you? Because I can imagine parents listening to you talk and thinking, I would love for my kids to grow up that way. I I, I do want, okay, let me clear, because it's, I don't think it's that we're not. Charles is countering a point that yes. no one has made. Uh, I don't think it's that we're not competitive. I think that we are competitive, like teammates are competitive, like people working together who still want each other to succeed, but also want to do a good job. Like, it's the difference between, like, a tennis match and, like, a basketball team working together. Because that's the thing. We grew up, like, leapfrogging each other's jokes and, like, not one-upping so much as, like, right now I'll take it and I'll add this part and I'll do this. When we talk about, like, our family background, like, the, the thing we always come back to is, like, we ate dinner together as a family every single night. Um, no exceptions, and that was essentially just uh, a a goof contest where we tried to make our mom and dad and each other laugh, and it was competitive. Like it was, it was a a competition where the win condition was you make your family laugh and you have like a really fun dinner. I can draw a direct line from that dinner that we had every single night to what we do on the podcast. It is pretty much the exact same thing. We hear from people like, man, I I'm not close to my adult siblings. I wish I had the relationship you guys do. And the honest truth about it is you should record a podcast with them every mm-hmm. week and then talk to them three times a week about business stuff and then go on <laughs> tours with them. And then, like, we didn't have this relationship when we started recording. I mean, certainly, like, that that was the main idea when we started was, like, we're going to be living in different places and we're going to have adult lives and, like, let's install this thing as a way that would make sure we stay close and – Throughout the process of recording it and and the growth of the show over the past almost seven years, like we have certainly had to learn who we are as adults and how we get along together as adult people. Right. That I don't think we would necessarily have that level of relationship were we not also working on on the podcast. I also do want to give more credit, like to our parents, because like on the one hand we had our dad who was showing us maybe one of the weirdest, most diverse collections of comedy influences. Ever, yeah, really um, random, and 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 also simultaneously like talking to us about why it was funny. Yeah, what and, what are the, some of those influences? So like MST3K was like a pretty big one. Watched a lot of Mystery Science Theater 3000. I can remember pretty. If you put on an episode of Kids in the Hall, I can pretty much tell you every sketch in that episode in order. Like we watched so much of of that show and like a lot of Saturday Night Live. Even when we were way too, for me being the youngest, like there was a lot of me. Even MST3K, which I love now, I didn't understand any of the jokes in it yeah. because they were all like these deep, 
like 1970s like film references for the most part. I didn't get it, but like I kind of like oh huh, played played along with it for the for a the lot most of part. Um, also SCTV yeah and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Marx Brothers like yeah Marx Brothers um, uh, Jonathan Winters uh, it was it was a pretty wide assortment of stuff. And then on the other hand, we had our mother who was like one of the nicest right. people I've ever known in my entire life, being this influence of like like when we'd sit around and make those jokes, it wasn't about being mean. Yeah, and it was like that wasn't cool. Like we weren't allowed to say fart for a while. <laughs> like that was upsetting to her because it was just too. It was vulgar, and like that idea of like, okay, so how can we be funny without just doing that? And now that we're adults, we've learned that we can just say fart and make people laugh. And it's way easier. Please be that out. Please, this is NPR, Travis. We're not at Uncle Lester's Chuckle Hut, <laughs> where you can just say whatever. Yeah, well, now that you now that you are adults and now that you have podcasts that people listen to, and you, it's clear that the relationship that you have on the show is is your relationship, right? And and you have you do the Adventure Zone where you are with your dad. Um, you all have other podcasts with wives and in laws and other folks. Um, is it is it difficult to have those close personal relationships exist both kind of in real life and also out in front of of people? Yeah, I, I'm. I'll it, say no. Like, yeah, I my wife. So my wife has said when people ask that question of like us, or she's like, "What you?" When they get on stage, it's exactly the same as being on a car trip with them. And like, I, I don't, I don't know how true that is, but according to my wife, like when we sit around and have a conversation, like at Christmas, it's the same as us sitting in front of a crowd. I mean, we're probably trying a little bit harder in front of a crowd. Yeah, but like. It all feels pretty natural. There, yeah. There are times when I br- – and this happened more early on, but um, because it is so close to our actual relationship, I, I, there were times when I would bristle when other people would comment on that relation. Like I, I, while I understand I open myself up to that by recording a podcast with them in a relationship that like mirrors our own in real life, like – Still, having people tell me that I'm being too mean to my brother or whatever, right. even if they're right, is like, hey, it's a, it's very hypocritical of me because it's like, hey, mind your own business. <laughs> it's, it, but it's, also, thank you so much for right. listening. But also, mind your own business. <laughs> it's, it's, I really don't think it's that different from our real lives, and that makes it, it cool most of the time. Weird sometimes. We have um, like familial nicknames that our parents came up with when we were babies. That our fans will call us sometimes, like that my my uh, d- mom and dad called me Ditto when I was born because I when I was a baby. It's from High and Lois, right? That's the, yeah. You look like Baby Ditto from, from High, and Lois. High and Lois, and so like like fans will sometimes be like, "Hey, Ditto, great job today!" And it's like it's it's kind of well, no, it's 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 cool, right? Like we've built that's a whole thing. It's like we've we've allowed that level of access into our lives it's 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 weird but on the inverse of that is like my wife and i do a podcast uh about the about the bachelor and uh and and the like number one review that we get on itunes is just like man i love your guys relationship and that's that's i justin made a face i think that's really cool like i think that is that's that's very no there's a paranoia there's a paranoia on my part because i i have a podcast called sawbones that i do with my wife and she's a doctor and so it's a medical history podcast and then we have a few podcasts together and then our dad is on a podcast I do have a paranoia that there will come a day where I will wish I had held more back for for myself that other people would not know and and that is not something I feel currently but I 
I live with the knowledge that that's a genie I can't necessarily put back into the bottle. So I do have like a deep seated, I think, fear that at some point I will become an intensely private person, I guess, <laughs> is, what, is what will happen. And I won't be able to walk it back. We'll finish up my conversation with the McElroy brothers after a short break. Coming up, the brothers tell me what it's like when you grow up in a family where literally everyone is funny. If only all of us were that lucky. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast comes from New West Records and the new album Close Ties from Grammy winner Rodney Crowell. A remarkable collection of new songs including It Ain't Over Yet and featuring performances with Roseanne Cash, Cheryl Crow, and John Paul White. Visit RodneyCrowell.com for more information. All this month, we're asking you to tell someone about a podcast they'll love. It can be a friend, your mom, your bus driver, just not while she's driving. When you've picked the perfect show for whomever it is, tell them about it in real life or on social media. And if they don't know how to listen to podcasts, show them how. Tell us what you recommended with the hashtag TRYPOD, T-R-Y-Pod. Thanks for spreading the word. Okay, back to the show. It's Bullseye. I'm NPR's Linda Holmes, in for Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the McElroy brothers. They're the co-hosts of the podcast My Brother, My Brother and Me, which is now a TV show available right now on the streaming network CISO. When you deal with the the um, very enthusiastic uh, listeners that you have, um, they are very deeply into a kind of a McElroy verse, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um to the degree that, like, your family has a wiki. Yes. Um, yep. Which most families don't have a wiki. Just us and the Osmonds. Right, exactly. My experience was, for people who don't know everything about the show, going to the wiki will make you more confused. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is so dense with things that are not going to mean anything unless you already listen to the show. Mm-hmm. Um, do you approach the show mostly as a project of kind of super satisfying those those listeners that you already have do you worry about kind of making it something that's going to make sense to people who are new to it because it's pretty dense with back references and yeah, stuff like that there's some of that there's some of that that we definitely do like anytime we even come close to talking about a ghost or a horse we're like oh, let's give let's give the people what they want and we'll 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 you know do do stuff like that but to be completely honest when it comes to the comedy side of things and like who we are uh, shaping our 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 comedy for? It is. Um, this is going to sound cornball, but it's like just the way it is. It's it's really just for each other. Like I'm not. Um, whenever I'm like making a joke, I'm not thinking like, oh, this is going to play really well to our audience. It is like I think this is. I think this is going to make Justin and Travis laugh. There are in jokes that aren't show in jokes that are just our in jokes. Like. When one of us references um, their off-court buddies, which is a reference to an old episode of the cartoon Doug about his basketball shoes that he wore when he was off the court, like that probably seems like a weird reference to something on the show before. No, it's just something we talk about constantly, and so it makes its way genetically into into the program. And we incorporated this in the TV show, too, where we were like, we didn't want to do artifice. We don't talk about it beforehand and like say, okay, with this question – here's a place where we can fit in a joke about horses. Like it just all comes up in the discussion. And if we, my hope is always that like, if, if you have listened to the show before you like that joke on it, on like eight levels 
And if you haven't listened to the show before, you like that joke on like four levels. I think the advantages to how closely you work with your family are are obvious to everybody who listens to your shows and your work. Is it complicated to think when you're making big decisions about about whether to do a TV show, how long to do the TV show, how to do the TV show? It is a question about being in a family business, but it's not a kind of family business where you feel like, you know, if one person decided they didn't want to do it anymore, you could hire somebody else. You have you you are very interdependent. I, I think I see. Yeah, there are times when it complicates things. Right when my daughter was old enough to where travel to like live shows and stuff would be a lot easier, the boys had simultaneously had children because they coordinated their lovemaking. But honest, the honest to God truth is, it makes it easier because it does. It's it's not an option. Like if the boys say to me like, actually that doesn't work for me in my life right now, there's no discussion to be had. Like there's yeah. no there's no reason to talk about it because I'm never going to push them to do something professionally that hurts them personally because they're my brothers first. So it's not, we're not, we're not going to talk about it anymore. I feel like the reason why um, this has not really been an issue is that all of us lack this unchecked ambition where it's like, I, I don't get, I didn't get angry at Justin because he had a newborn and couldn't tour when like our live shows were selling out and we would do these tours of like a few shows in, in the Midwest and they would all sell out. And it's like, guys, we could do this full time. There wasn't that like element that like pushed it over where all of a sudden we get frustrated because one person doesn't want to do the thing or can't do the thing. There isn't this like friction between any of us like, oh, why, why can't you just be more on board with this? I want this so bad. If one of us is like that, I think it would be a huge problem, but it's just not. Mm-hmm. It's it's miraculously it is it is not there. You're listening to Bullseye. My guests are Travis Griffin and Justin McElroy. The brothers star in the brand new CISO series, My Brother, My Brother and Me. It's based on the podcast of the same name. So I, I and I suspect that you guys, because you you don't live in a media town like L.A. or New York, you live uh, particularly Justin, you live in, in Huntington, that there are things that are, are tougher about that in terms of having a media career. Is that the case? Well, I have a really good answer for this. (laughs) Take it away, Travis. I actually moved to L.A. for two years um, from 2014 uh, to, you know, just 2016. And um, my goal was, like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to, like, shake some hands and meet some people. And and Justin and I were immediately like, oh, that's it. That's the podcast, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. We made it about 200 episodes in and Travis big timed us. And here's the thing. I am I'm full time. I just do podcasting. And so like I was out there and I would go to comedy shows and I'd meet these people and they were awesome and they were fun and I'd go to these events and they were great. But then I'd go home to where my studio was and I'd record there and like there was no reason to live there. And I think especially with with the the internet and the way it has provided artistic opportunities for people who don't live in places like Chicago and LA and New York, people who live in places like Huntington that they get to be like, okay, I still make something. My message to people who live in smaller towns who have creative ambitions would be this. Um, and it's something I tell people a lot. If you stay in your hometown and you work and you give it your all and you try your best in your creative work, eventually someone will pay a bunch of money to come shoot a TV show about you. Yeah. It happened to me. <laughs> 
not any, there, and there's not a lot of other Empir- people. Empirically like, speaking, empirically speaking it's, you're batting it a can thousand. Um, it can't. It does happen. Yeah. That America, come, America, this is you. They'll bring the TV show to your house, and then you don't have to go anywhere, really. But that's I, really what it comes down to is, what do you want to do? If you want to audition for movies, you should move to a place where people are making movies. Unless you're just so funny that they're like, we got to <laughs> move the movie to Huntington. I feel like that we we lose that. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was the big thing with Huntington. He's like, well, one of them's in Huntington, and he's very funny. Yeah. He's very funny. I moved from L.A. to Huntington to shoot a TV show yeah. there. Well, I appreciate so much you guys uh, talking about this. Justin Travis and Griffin McElroy, the show, My Brother, My Brother and Me. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Travis Griffin and Justin McElroy, the Brothers CISO show, My Brother, My Brother and Me, is available to stream now. You can also check out their podcast of the same name on iTunes or NPR One or Stitcher or whatever you use to listen to podcasts. It's Bullseye, in for Jesse Thorne. I'm Linda Holmes. My next guest is Gina Prince-Bythewood. She's a director, writer, and showrunner. Gina started out as a writer for TV. She had credits on South Central, Felicity, and A Different World. And in 2000, she wrote and directed the film Love and Basketball. It's a love story of two athletes and the kind of movie that inspires a really devoted fan base. If you've seen Love and Basketball, you probably love Love and Basketball. Gina's since directed The Secret Life of Bees, Beyond the Lights, and she's now at the helm of a brand new TV show on Fox. It's called Shots Fired. Set in North Carolina, Shots Fired is a police drama made for 2017. It talks about difficult stuff like race and police brutality in a way that doesn't talk down to the viewer. Instead, it flips the script and makes you think. The show's pilot starts off with the death of a white teenager at the hands of a black cop. Let's take a listen to a clip from that episode. In this scene, a young black state prosecutor named Preston Terry, played by Stefan James, is giving a press conference about the shooting to local media. Is there any video of the shooting or any witnesses? Uh, no video has surfaced as of yet. No witnesses have come forward, but it's still early in the Can you confirm that the name of the officer is Joshua Beck? We're not releasing his name at this time. But he is black. I'm not at liberty to say. We've all seen the cell phone footage. The officer is black. The victim is white. What I don't understand is why you're here. All the murdering of unarmed black men by police across this country. And this is the one that the government is investigating. So only black lives matter. I'm sorry. When is the last time you were pulled over by the police and didn't know if you were going to make it out alive? Listen, as a prosecutor, it is my job to ignore all personal biases and to focus on the truth. Now, I must admit, that can be hard. It can be tough. See, when I watched recent video of, of Laquan McDonald, of Tamir Rice, of Walter Scott shot in the back, murdered while running away from a child support payment, I am sickened. Sickened by the utter lack of humanity displayed by those officers and angered at the arrogance of their lies. Tina, they knew that there would be an assumption of innocence, not because of blue, but because of white. Gina Prince, by the way, welcome to Bullseye. No, thanks for having me. Uh, So before we get to Shots Fired, I have to tell you, there's an intern over here, and I told her that I was going to be talking to you, and uh, I mentioned uh, Love and Basketball to her, and she actually put her hand to her chest and gave me the gasp. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, I have to assume you get that a lot. I mean, you know, as an artist, you only hope that your your work can resonate and, and, you know, sustain life, and it's been really beautiful, the journey of Love and Basketball. What do you think it is about that movie? (laughs) 
Wow. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, uh, I think maybe because it was such a personal story and it was really a passion project um, that I was able to put so much angst into it. I think having looked back on it now, the fact that it was a character, the character Monica was really a portrayal of a girl and woman that we hadn't seen really before in film. And I hope that, you know, I had created a character that, you know, girls could look up to and aspire to. But also, you know, my hope was to inspire everybody that you can really try and have it all. You can have love in a career. Yeah. You you played basketball yourself, right? I did. I was a baller. And then I ran track at UCLA. Do you are, do you watch a lot of basketball at this time of year now or are you too busy? Oh, yeah. No, I'm, you know, I went to UCLA. UCLA is going to win the tournament this year. So I'm I'm all in. Well, that sounds good. So I want to talk about Shots Fired, which is uh, on Fox, and it's 10 parts, right? Yes. And talk a little bit about the the premise of Shots Fired and what it's about. Shots Fired is about a black prosecutor and black investigator at the DOJ who come down to investigate the shooting of a white unarmed teen by a black cop. And um, through the course of their investigation, they uncover the murder of a young black teen that was never investigated and come to find out that the two cases may be linked and tied to corruption within the North Carolina Police Police Department. It's interesting this was this project was really the perfect collision between desire and opportunity. You know, the the germ of it really began back uh with the Zimmerman trial um when he was found not guilty for murdering Trayvon Martin, a 17-year-old boy. Uh, my husband watched it with our older son, who was 12 at the time, and it, my son was just rocked. He It just shook his, his whole belief system, and my husband was not really able to hug and tell him it was going to be okay because, you know, how do you explain something like that? Instead, he opened up his laptop and um, showed him a documentary of Emmett Till, and that just led discussions in our house about the criminal justice system and how it works and in many cases doesn't work. And from those discussions, my son wrote a short story about Trayvon Martin going to heaven to meet Emmett Till. And that short story actually is in Hour 5 of Shots Fired. So our son Cassius was actually the first writer on the show. But it was a perfect example of using art to use art as a weapon, to use art to you know, put a mirror up to society. And that's absolutely, absolutely what we want to do with our work. So from the beginning, you conceived it as this kind of uh, 10 episode kind of series, not, I mean, not necessarily to the number of episodes, but you, you conceived mm-hmm. it as this longer project. Yeah. I mean, going in one of the caveats for, for us going back to TV is, you know, we were very upfront with the network. We didn't want to do more than 13 episodes just because we as viewers like that shorter format and also, you know, again, we, we both have films that we're, we're going to be doing. But when they suggested um, a 10-hour special event series, that just felt so perfect to us that we could tell the story that we were going to try and fit into two hours. Now we can tell it over 10 hours. And we really do think of this project as a 10-hour film. And, and that's how we approached it in all aspects. We'll continue my conversation with Gina Prince-Bythewood after a quick break. When we come back... At last, Gina's going to tell us the secret to writing a great love story. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. (music) 
There are tens of thousands of podcasts out there, and it's hard to know what's good. But WAMU and NPR's The Big Listen has come to the rescue. Host Lauren Ober introduces you to podcasts you might never have heard of and gives you the inside scoop on shows you already love, like the one you're listening to right now. Find The Big Listen on the NPR One app and npr.org slash podcasts. It's Bullseye. In for Jesse Thorne, I'm Linda Holmes, host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. We'll get back to my interview with Gina Prince-Bythewood in a minute. But first, I want to tell you about Pop Rocket, Bullseye's sister show here at Maximum Fun. Pop Rocket's a panel discussion about pop culture with some of the smartest, funniest voices in the game covering everything from Star Wars to Game of Thrones to Saturday Night Live. It's all hosted by the lovely, very funny Guy Branham. He's a comedian and host of the new True TV series talk show, The Game Show. Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? This week on Pop Rocket, we're going to be talking about uh, music that's turning 20. We're going to go back in time to 1997 and talk about all of the pop hits uh, that we loved and now mean we're very old. Sounds good. Pop Rocket. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm talking with Gina Prince-Bythewood. She and her husband, Reggie Rock-Bythewood, created the new TV series, Shots Fired. It's airing now on Fox. As you get into to Shots Fired, I, I think one of the things that strikes me about it is that it continues to uh, get more sort of complex as you go through it. And ultimately, there are stories about uh, private prisons and there are stories about uh, school segregation. And I wonder how, as you begin to drill down and kind of make the point that all of these things are connected to each other, how you go about um, putting some kind of structure around it so that you don't, because it seems to me it could be, you know, it could be 100 hours and you probably wouldn't (laughs) run out of things to tell stories about. So how do you, how did you go about kind of bringing it some kind of structure so that you could keep Mm -hmm. it in that, in that frame? Well, first, we knew what we wanted to say, but given that we were dealing with such a a real issue um, that affects people in such a real way, we knew we had to get it right. And so it started with research, and we we did something called Shots Fired University for our writing staff. And the first two weeks was just an intensive period of of being able to speak to some really great people on all sides of, of this issue and, as you said, private prisons and you know, we had the opportunity to speak with our former Attorney General, Eric Holder. Um, we spoke with Wanda Johnson, the mother of Oscar Grant, the young man who was killed up in Oakland, and the movie Fruitville was made for him. Ray Kelly, the former police commissioner of New York who instituted Stop and Frisk. People in law enforcement, a woman named Cheryl Dorsey, who was a 20-year vet of the LAPD. You know, we took all of this research and Knowing what we wanted to say, then it was, yeah, how do we tell the story and, and make sure we stay on point? And that was really Reg and I. Um, we wrote an 80-page Bible for the show, um, giving it a beginning, middle, and end, um, because we didn't want to leave this wide open. Um, we knew we wanted to go in telling these two mysteries and uh, making sure we never got lost um, in, in the storytelling. So that 80-page Bible set set up the story from jump and um that's what we showed the writing staff that's what we showed fox and and we never strayed from that um that that narrative that we had set out to tell where did you shoot it we shot in charlotte north carolina we were based and then we shot in a lot of the 
smaller towns um, right outside of Charlotte. It was perfect for the show. I mean, we looked at a number of places. We wanted, as I said, we wanted this to feel like Ferguson. Um, it was, you know, amazing when everything was going on in Ferguson and, and that was on television, how many people were talking about how they couldn't believe that this was America. And and more than that, it, it had the people. Um, the show, authenticity is it's so important. And so when we decided where we were going to shoot, we went to the residents and the neighborhoods and the houses and talked to them about the vision. We wanted them to be a part of it. We never wanted to feel like occupiers. So instead of going the traditional route of just doing extras casting, we asked them to be a part of it and be in the scenes and be in the neighborhood and be in the church. And it was amazing to see how they kept coming back. I mean, being an extra is fun for about five minutes and then it's hot and it's and you're bored, but we were there during, you know, the primaries, and it was—it's just strange. It's—it's it's a strange thing to, you know, be. You know, I'm in Los Angeles, and now I'm in North Carolina, and driving to work every single day. I'm passing Confederate flags hanging on houses. Just the normalcy of it—that was difficult. I want to play another clip from the show where you kind of touch on that. This scene features the character Lieutenant Breland, played by Stephen Moyer. He works for the small town police department that's under investigation for the shooting. And he also coaches the local high school football team. Uh, In this scene, he's talking with his daughter, who's on the team. She overheard him saying something to one of the black football players. Hi, Daddy. Hey, kiddo. You all right? Could be better. Let me guess. There's a party tonight, and your mom said you can't go. She called you. Yep. I did all my homework, and everyone's going to be there. No promises, but I will talk to her. Thanks. Go on. What now? Money? At the game, you told Tommy that his black ass didn't block for me, that you'd kill him. It worked, didn't it? That's racist. Tess, I didn't talk to him like that because he's black. I talked to him like that because he's the biggest guy we have. And some guys need a foot up their ass, and he is one of them. That's it. Okay. Now get your white ass to the party. I can go? I'll tell your mama I called an audible. Do you feel like... Being in that kind of uncomfortable place of seeing Confederate flags while you were driving in kind of contributed to the to the feel that you were trying to create in the project because there is so much tension in the show? Or is it something more that you try to put out of your mind? No, I think it, it was it helped feed all of us. You know, we're we're obviously the show, um, you know, we want it to be entertaining and it is a mystery and but we are also dealing with a very real subject, and, and we're really trying to create change, and, and there's absolute division. Um, and they, we have, you know, great issues with race in this country, and, and it was exemplified every day where we were shooting. Um, but there was also, as I said, the flip side of, you know, our crew, which was very diverse. Um, you know, it was one day on set, probably the toughest day on set was the, the morning after Philando uh, was shot and killed um, you know, in front of his daughter and his and his fiance, and she had live uh, Facebook lived it, and it just affected all of us so much because you're going to work the next day, and we were literally shooting something that that was very similar to that, and 
Um, our first AD, a black woman named Pip, she just couldn't start the day. And finally she called the entire crew together and, um, as I said, very diverse group of people and just led a, a prayer with the crew and the cast and just asked for grace. And it was a, a really phenomenal moment that brought everyone together and grounded us and reminded us why we were doing what we were doing. It's Bullseye. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm talking with Gina Prince-Bythewood. She and her husband, Reggie Rock-Bythewood, created the new TV series Shots Fired, which is airing now on Fox. And you're also working on the adaptation of Roxanne Gay's An Untamed State, right? (laughs) I guess so. Excited. She and I are co-writing the script together, um, something I haven't done before. But her book was so well-written. She's such a good writer. Um, It just felt right to to work with her on it. And, yeah, I mean, I read the book. She sent it to me after we met. And I was crazy busy and knew I didn't have time to, to read, even though I love to read. Um, but I said, you know, in my mind, I said, I'll just read 20 pages so I can, you know, at least say I, I started reading it. And I could not put it down. And, you know, read it in a day and a half. And I literally was left physically breathless um, at the end of it. And, it was so visual. I was seeing it in my head while I was reading, and I just felt like, God, if I could make a movie that makes an audience feel the way I feel right now, uh, we've won. It was very interesting because as we pitched it around town, you know, there was a, we went to a couple different studios and we're having good meetings, but when we went to Searchlight, it was the first meeting that we pitched, and it was two women, uh, Dan Tram Wynn and Anika McLaren, um, and it was such an inspiring meeting. And and I remember sitting there thinking, how rare is this? As much as I pitched, I'm pitching to two women in a position uh, to greenlight something. How often do you pitch to women who can greenlight things? (laughs) I mean, very rare. I remember with Beyond the Lights going, you know, we pitched to a lot of studios and it was, it was, I mean, it's rare. It is very rare, Um, too rare. And uh, I, I do think it makes a difference in terms of projects that that have um, women at the center of them, um, because I think people greenlight what they want to see. And that's, you know, if you're a guy, do you want to see The Secret Life of Bees? I don't know. I hope so. Obviously, you hope that, that all your work is universal. Um, but uh, it's, it's, you know, there is a difference in different aesthetic. And I just think to get more projects made, we just need more women in positions of power. You you have made some really successful love stories um, in addition to, to other stories. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about what you think separates a kind of a good, it's hard to make a good romantic movie, or maybe it's not hard, but maybe they don't get made as often as, as some of us would wish. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think is the what do you think is the trick to making a, a kind of a worthwhile um, romantic movie? I mean, I love the genre, and you're right. I mean, great love stories are rare, and like a straight love story, not even a romantic comedy, but straight love stories is rare. But when they're great, they're great, and um, I think you know the key is that you have great characters and great conflict. I mean, it's it's the nature of a love story that you know ultimately they will probably end up together. So how do you make the journey to that most interesting? And that, that really goes to the characters. Um, but also I think it's important that you're not writing only a love story, that the two characters have lives outside of their life with each other so that 
other things are going on in the story, um, which makes them fuller characters. And, and the hope is that you can create a journey where you're yearning for the two to be together as opposed to, I know they're going to get together. Yeah. I was When I was watching Love and Basketball most recently, one of the things that I noticed about it was they are not opposites um, <laughs> to me as much as you sometimes see people presented. There will be one loud one and one quiet one or there will be <laughs> one really driven one and one more modest one. They're both really stubborn and they're both really ambitious about about particularly about playing basketball. Yeah. Actually, I've never thought of it that way, but uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, it was really the things that were going on in their uh, lives. They both had the same drive and, and ambition, but their their conflicts in their lives were, were actually coming from other people as opposed to each other. Um, but it was a way that they dealt with it individually that caused the conflict. That's why you ain't getting recruited. Who said I'm not getting recruited? Your hot ass temper, that's who. I'm... I'm not the one who put this scar here when oh, we were 11 we years again. old because he was about to lose. You know what? <laughs> Give me your best shot. Give me your best shot. I'm sick Would of you, you hanging this. you watch the damn road? I'm watching the road. I'm sick of you hanging this over my head now. Come on. Give me your best shot. What? Don't tempt me. Don't tempt me. I'm warning you. I'm warning you. If you don't start a bad attitude, no one's going to recruit you. Please. You jump in some guy's face, you you talk smack, and you get a, a pat on your ass. But because I'm a female, I get told to calm down and act like a lady. I'm a ball player, okay? With a jacked-up attitude. <laughs> Didn't know you cared so much. I really don't. Good. Does it ever, does the stuff about trying to protect your own vision and trying to get the stories made that you want to see, does mm-hmm. any of that ever get any better? I mean, beyond the beyond the kind of um, what you said about, you know, getting to pitch women occasionally and maybe hopefully more in the future and things like that, does any of it ever get any easier or is it just, is the grind of it kind of inevitable, do you think? Um, I would say after Beyond the Lights, I realized that the grind is inevitable. But with each project, you're like you have it's almost like muscle memory because of honestly, it honestly started in film school when I I actually was rejected when I applied for UCLA film school my junior year. And I fought that and wrote a letter to the head of the film department. She read it and called me two days later and, and said, I'm in. So that overcoming no that early in my career has absolutely set the table. And with Love and Basketball, everyone turning it down, you realize you just need one yes. And so every time it happens, you you have that memory of, yes, it was hard, but it's going to get made because I'm passionate enough to keep fighting for it. It fuels the fight. Well, Shots Fired is on Fox. It's 10 parts. Uh, As I said, big cast, uh, lots going on in that show. And Gina Prince-Bythewood, thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you so much. And I sincerely appreciate, I mean, you you talk about my work a lot. And I'm very, very grateful to that and grateful to my sister, Krista, up in Seattle, who um, points out every time she listens to NPR and hears, hears you say something, she's the one that tells me to listen. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Happy to. I'm glad we could do it. Thank you. Gina Prince-Bythewood, Shots Fired's first ever season just kicked off. You can check it out on Fox on Saturdays at 8 p.m.
Every week on Bullseye, we like to end the show by recommending something that's worth your time. It's the outshot. And since we've been talking so much about very current stuff like Ferguson, Missouri, comedy podcasts, new TV shows, let's go back a little, back to the 40s. That's when Pete Seeger, one of my favorite all-time musicians, started making folk records. He sang with the group The Weavers, who had some real hits, like their version of Lead Belly's Goodnight Irene. Seeger was blacklisted in the 1950s. Like a lot of artists back then, he was accused of being a communist. He was subpoenaed to testify in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee, where he refused to talk about his politics and was indicted for contempt of Congress. That episode followed him around through the 1960s, but he lived to be 94. And he even sang with Bruce Springsteen at Barack Obama's inauguration in 2009. He died in 2014. Pete Seeger wrote and co-wrote tons of songs people grew up singing at home or at camp, like If I Had a Hammer and Where Have All the Flowers Gone. But what I really love is listening to him make crowds sing. That's Pete leading a sing-along concert at Harvard in January 1980, when he was 60. But he had done the crowd work with the Weavers, too. And right in the middle of teaching people to sing something familiar, like Michael Rowe the Boat Ashore, he'd just say something really, really smart about life. You sing. Or here, when he explains at the Harvard sing-along that he'll be leading them in an especially slow version of Amazing Grace. There's a long meter style of singing the song. No matter how slow I go, don't stop singing. Just take a new breath and keep on going, and nobody will know the difference. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Like me. 
strange paradoxes of public performance is that lots of people can't sing, but almost all crowds can. The crowds he led sounded great for the most part, give or take a frustrating tendency to clap on the downbeat. love crowds singing. I cry in crowds singing. And it's not just Pete Seeger. The Irish band The Frames has a live album recorded in 2002 called Set List. And early on, the singer Glenn Hansard, who later starred in Once, realizes how many people are singing along with the song Lay Me Down. We'll return again when it gets dark and day is done. Lay Wow. That's how I always feel, too. Like Pete Seeger says, in a crowd, you can hold the note as long as you need to. Take a breath, he says, and keep on going. You spell the person next to you, and they spell you. And as long as you keep going, nobody knows the difference. A mix of people who are sharp and flat and too fast and too slow becomes a crowd that can sing anything. Late in that performance of Amazing Grace, the crowd says the word now, and it creates a chord that's so rich and so perfectly realized that you can tell Pete doesn't want it to end. holds it and holds it because it's perfect and they could do it forever. They take a break, keep on going. You'd never know the difference. That's my outshot. To everything turn, 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 there is a season Turn, 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 and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson with help from Kristen Duenas. Production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. 
Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries. If you want to hear me, you can find me over at Pop Culture Happy Hour at NPR.org or wherever you get podcasts. And if you'd like to hear any of our past programs from Bullseye, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. Jesse's back next week, so I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. And a time for every purpose under heaven.